Improvisations with play-by-play analysis, including instant replay. What? Stay tuned. First this. Hi, it's Peter Saltzman. You're listening to Improvisations on the Ledge. If you're enjoying this podcast with its unique blend of piano and verbal improvisation, please subscribe, give it five stars, and write a verbose review with lots of big words. On to the show. For this episode, I was originally going to do an IOTL short, one of the half-assed episodes in between the longer ones. Uh, Usually what I do with these is do some free improvisations with barely any commentary and no discernible thematic development. Over the course of three days, while I was thinking about the longer one, preparing it, I recorded several short improvisations, which I thought I would be using in this IOTL short. And then I had a thought. Several of them I liked. Several of them were okay. I had a thought that instead of just doing improvisations with barely any commentary, I would actually do self-analysis. Now, this is not going to be a geeky musical self-analysis. Rather, it's going to be what's going on in my head as I'm improvising. What is the process? And it's surprisingly, I would say, mundane and not pure at all. Thank goodness. So here's that. First, you're going to hear a complete improvisation, the first one. Then I'm going to go back, and as it's playing, I will comment on what's going on, stop the improvisation, insert something to explain what was going on, and and that will be it. Then you could go back and listen to the complete improvisation again with this newfound knowledge of my impure thoughts as I was engaging in this supposedly fluid, pure improvisation. I fear that I'm giving away too much information here, but whatever.
Great. So that's the improvisation. And now I'm going to start the track from the beginning again and do a real-time play-by-play analysis. I am both the play-by-play announcer and the color analyst in this case. Maybe I'll bring in Mike Tirico or somebody to do the play-by-play in future episodes. When you're playing, improvising like this freely, you're, as I've spoken about, drawing on your entire history, what you've played, what you've listened to. And as I started to play this, at some point, maybe about here, I realized I'm quoting Giant Steps, the John Coltrane tune I went into deeply in episode 20, I believe. And as soon as that happens, there's a part of my brain, some sub-process that's going, I got to get out of this. So let me stop there just a minute and remind you of that tune. If you haven't listened to episode 20, Giant Steps episode, you should listen to it. But here's the tune. So the, the main thing going on there is that I used this descending theme, which was... So let's go back to the improvisation and see how I did that, and then how I got out of it. I take it as a starting point, and then try to subvert it so that it's not really... that tune anymore and then at this point I kind of in the left hand invert that melody somewhat with variation and improvise over it so I've left behind that giant steps theme now I'm playing this kind of ostinato in the left hand but I recognize at some point it's in 7-8 Two three four five six seven one two three four five six seven one two three four five six seven one two three, and I kind of mess it up in places. But the point is, I'm recognizing it, and seven eight time is asymmetrical. It's four plus three in this case. One two three four. One two three. One two three four. One two three. Now, by the way, ostinato means a repeated pattern, rhythmic, melodic, or both, like this. so on. Uh, Literally, in Italian, ostinato means obstinate, which could be a definition of me. Anyway, 7-8 being an asymmetrical time signature, meaning it, you know, you can't divide it evenly, like 4-4, 2 plus 2. And by the way, music generally falls into twos and threes. You add them together, you can get five. That's an asymmetrical time signature. 3-4, the waltz time, by the way, 1-2-3-2-2-3 is its own little world. It's not asymmetrical, it's just uh, you can't divide that either into even numbers. Like, But we don't consider that asymmetrical. It's just three is a fundamental property of the universe, right? 
some physicists discovered that three was this magical number. So forget about three. Anyway, this seven-eight business, it's troublesome in that the lack of symmetry in it, the asymmetry in it, makes it potentially difficult to add things up, literally. So I'm playing seven-eight and I'm thinking, ah, crap, I'm in seven-eight, now what? I have to stay with this because I got myself into it somehow. And I liked what I was doing, but I also felt like I'm going to screw this up. 7-8, I'm going to try to do something non-asymmetrical, which would non-asymmetrical would be symmetrical. So that means I would try to put something like even fours or twos over it so that it doesn't become monotonous. I want to create some symmetry within the asymmetry if you know what I mean, right? And that's a problem because then things aren't equaling out. If this were a math problem, you have like this, and I'm terrible at math, common denominator. You have numbers like one-fourth plus one-third plus one-ninth. And then you find the denominator on the bottom, right? By what? Multiplying those numbers? I don't know. And then you get things to even out. Well, this is what this is kind of like in music. When you have a asymmetrical time signature and you try to put something symmetrical on top of it. But of course, this is happening in real time. You don't have time to sit there and do the math, right? You have to negotiate it, particularly if it's improvised in the moment. So as I'm doing this, I'm thinking another impure musical thought, which is I need to write an exercise for this. The next day or that day later, I did or I started one uh, using that exact pattern, this thing. Anyway, continuing on, there's the ostinato in the left hand, and I'm trying to create a melody. Now, um, keep going. Probably wondering what the hell am I going to do in my right hand here? So I keep going, trying to figure out a way to do something. This is interesting because right here I'm doing this descending line that starts to sound a little bit like the left hand. And then I say, okay, it sounds a little bit like it, so I'm going to actually do that. And you hear that. Now I take the ostinato into the right hand and try to play a melody in the left hand. I don't quite get the right hand right because I wasn't really mentally noting the exact notes. But again, it leads me down another path and I take the left hand and sort of imitate the right hand. And then we're on to something else. Most likely what I'm thinking here is I can't keep going with this 7-8 business. I'm getting lost. But I'm still doing 7-8-ish. I repeat the theme from the beginning, which is an inversion of that 7-8. So in a way, it's a complete composition, and then we're out. Somehow it works out in the end, or not. 
But now you can see what the process is in an improvisation. It is a kind of compositional process happening in the moment with a lot of um, impure musical thoughts like, what the hell am I going to do here? Is that a pure musical thought? Who cares? In the end, it either works or it doesn't. Now that you've had it dissected and probably ruined for life, well, I'll just play it again. As you listen this time, think about some of those things that I said. See if it either enriches the musical experience, detracts from it, or doesn't make any difference whatsoever. And just to give you a quick Cliff Notes overview of what I just spoke about, here's what you're listening for. How I state accidentally the theme from Giant Steps, and then I try to find my way out of it, that's B, and end up doing this ostinato that is kind of based on it in an inversion, improvise over that with the right hand, and while I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing in the right hand, I end up transitioning to having the right hand do that ostinato while the left hand improvises over it, and then I come back to close with the original theme.
Okay, let's go on to another one. Uh, this will be shorter. Uh, I realize your time is precious, so you can always stop listening. I just improvised this one while I was taking a break from what you just heard, the editing process and all that. And I wanted something of a romp, something fast and furious to contrast with that last thing, which was slow and lugubrious. So here it is. See if your analytical abilities have evolved. That improvisation was obviously different. As I said, it was a bit of a romp. It's short and spirited, but also has a fair amount of complexity in it. So let's listen again with the real-time analysis. And this is just really minutes after I've done this, so the thoughts are fresh in my mind. What was I thinking as I played it? Here we go. At this point, it's just a bunch of fast figures. There's a suggested in the suggestion in the right hand of a melody, but nothing really. And then here, I'm thinking, I need a melody here to support this. So you have that little da 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 thing. Then I go back to the original kind of mulithless. And here's the theme again, the rising and falling theme. Back to the theme. Now the left hand decides it wants to chime in. A little mistake there. Um, now here I go, interestingly, go up the scale. I continue to the same basic theme, but instead of going down, I keep going up. That's a variation. That's a answer. A 
the call was made. Now something else is happening. Very interesting. A kind of indecisiveness. Now it changes that theme even more. At least in the right hand. The left hand insists on doing the same thing. More variation in the right hand. Now we're back to that kind of beginning figure, but it's been transformed somewhat by the inclusion of the melody. Now something different. Huh. But the left hand plays that final theme. And I'm thinking at this point, since I just did this improvisation, I remember exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking I really only used the middle of the piano down. I didn't use anything above that. So as I played that last chord, last figure in the left hand, I was thinking, I should probably do this in the upper register, take that theme or something, and do the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da way up high, like this. But as soon as I had that thought, I had the counter thought, which was, who says I have to use the whole piano in every piece of music? It's okay, Peter. You're allowed to just use that part of the piano. And the funny thing is, I spoke about at the beginning how every improvisation you're drawing on your entire history. I remembered as soon as I had that thought, and this is, of course, all going on in real time in a matter of milliseconds or at most two seconds. As soon as I had that original thought, I, I got to play something up high because I've been playing only in the middle and lower register. Uh, and then the counter thought was, oh, shut up. You could, you know, you could just stay there. I, I remembered I was taking a piano lesson out in Desplaines. De Plan. In Chicago, we call it Desplaines, man. So as, as soon as I had that thought, that counter thought, I remembered this piano lesson I took with this jazz-ish teacher out in Desplaines. And the guy before me was, I was 15 at most, 16. And the guy before me was a very orthodox, let's say, jazz pianist. Very much played within the kind of bebop, post-bebop style and was, I could tell, highly opinionated about anything that came after it. Somehow, as we were transitioning from the end of his lesson to mine, and he was maybe 30 years old or most, he lived in Los Angeles and he came back occasionally to take a lesson with this grand old dom of jazz-ish piano. He said something. I somehow brought up Herbie Hancock, whom I loved, and he just tore into him he basically said there's nothing beyond Oscar Peterson who is a great pianist absolutely brilliant pianist so this is nothing against Oscar but he said during the course of this brief exchange that for some reason he was focusing on doing everything for right now in the middle of the piano that to use the extremes was in some ways excessive it was a bizarre thing to say even at 15 years old I was going this guy's a douchebag uh, I don't even know if we used that word back then so all these things thoughts occurred to me in two seconds at the end of that song. I don't know if other musicians have these thoughts as they're playing, non-musical thoughts or part of their history. I do remember reading something about the great Charlie Parker, the great bebop 
saxophonist in which you know he's playing live in some dingy club in kansas city and in walks a beautiful woman and he immediately changes his improvisation to a very bluesy guttural thing to try to connect with this woman i suppose you could say well he's not following his pure train of musical thought but in fact he is he's existing in the moment and that's what happened at that moment had to happen because it did that's my entire theory of improvisation had to happen because it did so here's that one again without my insane analysis And now for a final improvisation. I'm going to get back to the dark, lugubrious mode. Lugubrious, when I say that, is a word that I learned from a piano teacher at Indiana University. I was playing a piece by Brahms, an intermezzo. And it was actually a piece... I love Brahms, but I didn't really like this piece of music. As I was playing it during the lesson, my teacher said... It needs to be more lugubrious. I had to go look it up. But I've loved the word since then. It has a very lugubrious sound to it, doesn't it? So, back to a lugubrious mode, but this time somewhat different. It states the melody pretty clearly right out front. There's no suggestion of giant steps or anything that I immediately identify. So I go with it and develop the melody in a some interesting ways. If you remember last episode, I talked about two-part inventions, how I used it as a technique so I could have musical conversations with myself, have a melody and then a melody working with it simultaneously or responding to it. 
So you'll hear a little bit of that going on here. Once I've introduced the melody, the way I develop it, besides changing the harmony underneath, is to have a kind of dialogue between two or more voices. Check it out. So it begins very briefly with an accompaniment in the left hand, but gets right to the melody, right there. Four note motif that I then go up with. Same thing, but shift it up, and then again, up another third or so. Then the melody moves its way back down. Very common. Ah, harmonic shift here. Now I bring in a second voice, lower. Notice the... Here comes the two parts, the little two-part invention going on in the right hand, lower, and higher part of the right hand. Ah, now I do it in thirds. In one, in the lower part, ooh, shift back to the original chord. Nice. Oh, but an immediate shift right back to that second chord. Now we have a new melody in the upper part. Well, the lower part keeps that original melody. Now back to the second chord. Oh, the left hand wants to do a little bit of the melody. Nice. Nice. While the right hand does some meaningless scale figure, 
to fill in time while I think about what to do next. Oh, we're back to the original chord and the melody. It's a little faster now because I've figured out what the hell I'm doing in the process of doing this. And then I take the basis of that last figure is actually the chord arpeggiated, the original accompaniment. And that's it. Very short. If you just listen to it without thinking about it, in the background it would just seem like kind of monotonous, but it's not. There's a lot of development going on in that short two-minute span. So that's it. I'll play it again, and we're done. I hope I haven't ruined your experience of listening to music, but I think the truth is that contrary to what some of those early rock and rollers would have you believe, understanding what's going on on some level, even if you don't have the technical knowledge, actually enriches your experience. Music is a rather abstract language of sound, particularly when there's no lyrics, there's no words that can help you understand the narrative. It's a narrative of sound, instrumental music, purely instrumental music. The narrative happens with sounds alone, and to say that understanding how those sounds are developing would detract from your experience is frankly ignorant and disingenuous. Of course, it doesn't detract. It enhances. me, Peter Saltzman, again. I mean, who else? Stay tuned for the next episode of Improvisations on the Ledge, which you'll be gently notified about if you subscribe. And if you love the music, you can hear a ton more on my Bandcamp page, petersaltzman.bandcamp.com, where you can also subscribe and get access to exclusive content, including all the music from these podcasts, not to mention all the non-piano music, like my one-minute songs. 
And if you want to support my work directly, please check out my newly launched Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Peter Saltzman. Finally, be sure to check out my main website, petersaltzman.com, for all the latest. And don't worry, all of these links are in the notes below. Thanks for listening.